Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part three of the first book of Samuel, chapters 27 through 30, and now Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. In 1992, she was convicted of fraud and theft, and she received negative publicity, but still a lot of people followed her. She went through four marriages, and she received flack for several highly publicized false predictions. 204, she said that a missing woman had been murdered, and later it was discovered the woman was alive, hadn't been murdered. She died in 213. Next on the scene, in 1998, John Edward published his first book. You may have seen him on talk shows. When Larry King had him on, the switchboard was overwhelmed. He was extremely popular. He started writing books in the year 2000, and he went through every talk show circuit imaginable. He ran his own show for four seasons. He was the first guy to have his first syndicated TV show about psychic mediumship. He's been on Dr. Phil. He's written many books, and Dr. Oz has kind of have adopted him now because he specializes in making connections with the dead. And he says he does this because it can really help survivors deal with their grief. Oprah has on many mediums. This is Rosemary Altia. This is Etta Smith. She often works with the police to help find dead bodies. And then there's the Long Island medium, Teresa Caputo, which just divorced her husband after 28 years of marriage. And she has a a show, Long Island Medium, and she's in her 14th season with 87 episodes. So these are very popular. This is a medium to the stars, to the celebrities. This is Tyler Henry. He has a smash hit on E! Network. If you don't know him, I'm sure your kids do. It's a reality show. He counsels people such as the Kardashian family and many others. He works with them to be the medium to the stars. Many movies about mediums, and now this will start this Saturday, the the 13th in Britain, called Psychic Private Eyes. Britain's best-known psychic mediums will be investigating murderous criminal cases, often where the dead are the only witnesses. So I just want to tell you, we have mediums too. To this day, no matter what the reason, the Bible condemns the practice of mediumship and attempting to speak to the dead. Through seances, any other means, it is expressly forbidden. Leviticus 19, do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. If a person turns to mediums, Leviticus 20, playing the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from his people. Leviticus 20, a man or woman who is a medium shall be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Deuteronomy 18, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination, a soothsayer, an augur, a sorcerer, a charmer, a medium, a wizard, or a necromancer. This is pretty clear. Saul would have known all these scriptures. They're all in Torah. What's a necromancer? It's one who practices necromancy. 
a person who practices necromancy, a magician or wizard, a practice of black magic involving communication with the dead, either by summoning their spirits as apparitions, visions, or raising them bodily for the purpose of divination. Necromancy is sometimes called death magic. It's not a new word. It comes from the Latin necromancia, borrowed from the Greek classical literature, necromancia, dead body and divination together. It's a compound word. Origin of Alexandria used it way back in the third century. Uh, it appears in the Odyssey. You had to read Homer's Odyssey in high school or college. Uh, the Odyssey has a realm of the dead souls. There's necromancy. It started in Egypt, in Babylonia, in Rome, in Greece, in Persia, in Chaldea. It's nothing new. So we're seeing this today. What's the Catholic Catechism say about it? That God can reveal the future to his prophets or to other saints. Still, a sound Christian attitude consists in putting oneself confidently into the hands of providence for whatever comes in the future and giving up all unhealthy curiosity about it. Improvidence, however, can constitute a lack of responsibility. I looked up improvidence as an adjective. It means not provident or lacking foresight in cautious, unwary. We have to be aware of these things because they're very deceptive and they're very clever and cunning and sly. And people get involved in things that they should have had some knowledge of. So that's why I want to tell you all forms of divination are to be rejected as recourse of Satan or demons conjuring up the dead or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future, consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm reading, interpretation of omens and lots, and the phenomenon of clairvoyance which many of these mediums profess to be clairvoyant. Any recourse to mediums all conceal a desire for power over time, power over history, and the last analysis, power over human beings, as well as a wish to conciliate hidden powers. They contradict the honor, respect, and loving fear that we owe to God alone. All practices of magic or sorcery, which one attempts to tame occult powers so as to place them at one's service, to have supernatural power over others, even if it's for the sake of restoring their health or like making them feel better about their dead dad or their dead mom. They didn't get to say goodbye. They just want to say one more thing. Whatever the reason, it is not to be done. These practices are condemned and they can harm people. Ignatius of Loyola talks about good spirits and bad spirits, evil spirits, and those two standards. You either are moving closer to God or further away from God. You have to choose a master. Which side are you on? Spoiler alert for next week. Saul is going to die of his unfaithfulness. He was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the command of the Lord. He consulted a medium. This is what 1 Chronicles 10 says. He's going to die because he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. This is very serious. Everybody plays the fool. So Saul's really going to be a fool now. Saul disguises himself. He puts on other garments. He went and two men went with him. They came to the woman by night. Interesting. He's disguised and he's coming in the dark of night and he's not Nicodemus. Saul said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whoever I name to you. And the woman said to him, to Saul in disguise, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off all mediums and wizards from the land of Israel. Why then are you laying a snare for my life to bring about my death, says the woman. And Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Is that true? According to all those things I just read you? He's a liar. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me, the prophet Samuel. 
the dead prophet. He's dead and buried, we just heard. Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Ah! You can just hear it. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, have no fear. What do you see? See how curious he is? What do you see? Tell me what you see. And the woman said to Saul, I see a God, little G, coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And Saul bowed his face to the ground and did obeisance. And the woman from Endor, Israel, she has acted as a medium, an intermediary between the living and the dead. At Saul's request, she has conjured up and consulted with the spirit of the deceased, condemned in Torah. She is practicing necromancy, the practice of the magic, black magic involving communication with the dead, either by summoning their spirit as an apparition, a vision, and ra or raising them bodily. This is an absolute abomination of God for any reason. No matter what the reason, God says no, absolutely not. God has commanded us over and over and over again not to do this. God does that because he loves us. Because this stuff can really happen. It's true. If it wasn't true, he wouldn't care about it to protect us from it. This is real. Yes, this is real. It really happens. And God is protecting us, his beloved children. God is fighting. He's battling for our soul and the soul of your children. If you have any tarot cards or Ouija boards, get them out of your house. Burn them. God wants us to trust his word and his word alone. God wants us to obey his word, hear it and do it. God does not want us contacting the dead, even though it is possible in the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is an unseen reality for that very reason. Kind of scares the hell out of you, doesn't it? People are so curious about it. For which we must trust God because as baptized sons and daughters of God, God only has our best interest at heart. So the devil tried to get even Adam to think, you know, God, did God really say that? Oh man, he's not telling you the full story. Yes, he is. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He's kind of ticked off. He's in Sheol because the gates of heaven haven't been opened yet. They won't be open until Jesus is on the cross dying. Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and he answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you, Samuel, to tell me what I should do. Summoning a dead person for instruction. Absolutely forbidden. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord is now Saul's enemy. But you got to understand that right. Saul has freely chosen that. He has chosen that route. That's the side he aligned with. That's the standard he went under. Saul has freely chosen the opposite standard of evil. So that's on the other side of the Lord. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, Saul, and given it to your neighbor, David. Just like I told you when I was alive. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, and you did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. What? That's a reason? Because you did not carry out God's fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Well, who's Amalek? He sounds pretty important if that's why the kingdom's been torn away from Saul. Amalek attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, intentionally targeting the weak, the weary, the, the sick, 
the elderly, those who were lagging behind at the back of the line in the exodus from Egypt. When all those people left Pharaoh in Exodus 17, the Israelites had not yet made it to Mount Sinai to marry God. It's Exodus 17, and they are attacked by Amalek and the Amalekites, and they hit the stragglers in the back of the line and just obliterate them. You might remember from our Exodus study, they intentionally targeted the weak and the backleggers. And when this happened, it's in Exodus 17, then came Amalek, he fought with Israel at Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did, and Moses told him and to fight, fight with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held his hand up, Israel prevailed. And whenever Moses lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. And Moses' hands were getting tired and weary. So they put him on a stone and had him sit down. And Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands, one on one side and one on the other. And they held his hands steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua moved toward Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And, and Moses, the Lord told Moses, write this down. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord God said that. Amalek must be blotted out for what he did to my people, to the weak and the poor and the stragglers. And Moses built an altar there that day and he named it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the banner of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, Exodus 17. Now, the Jewish commentary on this says that God vowed that his name and his throne would not be complete until Amalek's name would be totally obliterated. Now, God's repeated that again and again, that Amalek was the first of the nations, but at the end, he's coming to destruction. Remember what Amalek did to you. Never forget, you shall blot out in remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. God kept reminding them. So they're in this territory. David's at Ziglag, but David is fighting people like the Amalekites. That, that, God doesn't mind that. They're supposed to be blotted out. All these arrows are old enemies of Israel. God is so mad with Saul because in 1 Samuel 15, they had their chance to obliterate the Amalekites. Go and smite Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. They had their chance. Go depart, go down from among the Camelite, destroy, destroy them. I showed kindness, I showed, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Saul had his chance, he was fighting them, and he killed every single person except one, who? the king. Saul let Agag, the king of the Amalekites, stay alive. And then what did Saul do? He took all the best of the sheep, all the best of the oxen of the Amalekites, all the fatlings, all the lambs, all that was good, all that was despised and worthless, they destroyed. But all the good stuff Saul saved. He did not obey the Lord. He was supposed to totally obliterate them, destroy all the stuff from them. And, and Saul leaves the king and takes all the good stuff for himself. And for that, Samuel said, that'll cost you the kingdom. The Lord is very displeased. So he's done that and he's consulted a medium now two strikes. Samuel said, why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you, you've become his enemy. The Lord is now Saul's enemy by Saul's own choice. 
The Lord has done to you as he spoke to me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You did not obey the voice of the Lord. You did not carry out the fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel, also you, into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, Saul, you and your sons shall be with me. And where's he? In the place of the dead, in Sheol. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. That's not what Saul wanted to hear from Samuel. Why did he do this? Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear. Because the word of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, he had not eaten anything all day and all night. Now this part's really important, and a lot of people don't catch it. Saul hasn't eaten for 24 hours. He's very hungry. And the medium now is going to tempt Saul to eat. And she's going to seem super nice and super sweet. This is not a nice lady, a nice medium being hospitable. Don't be deceived. The medium wants Saul to eat blood so that they can share a blood covenant meal because they're making a deal with the devil, a covenant. The medium wants to seal the deal with the evil one for Saul's soul. The woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, so he's in a state of fear again. Fear is not of the Lord. He's in a great state of fear, and she says, because he's just heard that they're all going to be wiped out tomorrow. So his death is imminent, and it's at hand, and we could get his soul. Behold, your handmaid has hearkened to you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I have hearkened to you what you have said to me. And therefore, you also hearken to your handmaid. Let me set out some bread before you, a morsel of bread, and eat that you may have strength and go on your way. Isn't she nice? Saul will be fed bread by the hand of the witch of Endor. David was fed bread, holy bread, from the hand of the high priest of Israel, God's bread. Saul will be fed by the witch of Endor, bread, and not only bread, but a fatted calf with blood. It will be a covenant meal with a medium. Saul refuses to eat. He said, I will not eat. He knows it's against Torah laws, but his servants are hungry, and together with the woman urging him, he hearkened to their words, and he arose from the earth, and he sat upon the bed of the medium on her bed. And the woman had a fatted calf in her house. She just happened to have a fatted calf in the house. Huh. And she quickly killed it. And when you quickly kill a calf, you don't have time to properly drain the blood like the Israelites are supposed to do. They know from Genesis 9, you cannot drink blood. She needed the bread quick, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they rose, and they went away that night. They have made a blood covenant with a medium, with the witch of Endor. The medium was not a gracious host, but a cunning strategist for the evil one and intent on her own survival. The food she prepared for Saul was a frantic sacrifice to the spirits of the dead, entailing the stringently prescribed eating of blood, which God strictly prohibited in Leviticus 17. All about it you can read. They can't eat blood. Secondly, the shared meal was unholy bread baked by a medium, and Saul engages in a legally effective covenant meal between God's anointed first king of Israel, making a blood sacrifice with a sorceress. Thirdly, the forbidden meal with a medium serves as an apostasy that will warrant Saul's pending suicide. Saul doesn't just get killed in battle. He takes his own life the next day. And lastly, it provides a scenario in contrast to Saul's treachery with David's constancy in an analogous situation. You see David in the holy bread, you see Saul in the unholy bread and the blood. David, bread and wine, Saul, bread and blood. 
Remember when the mysterious spirits came, the spiritual, the Lord, it said, came in three persons to Abraham at the tent at the Oaks of Mamre, and he told Sarah, hurry, make three loaves of bread real quick, and, and she did, unleavened bread, and gave one to each of them, and they also killed a fatted calf for those three spiritual beings, but they had, they gave it, they gave the calf, Abraham went out to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. So they prepared it in the way of Torah, draining the blood properly. Even though they did it quickly, you see the contrast. Okay, so now the woman, the medium, had a fatted calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. Okay, the next chapter, 129. The Philistines are going to go up in battle against the Israelites. And we know David's on the Philistine side. But the men in the Philistine camp tell the king, we don't want David and his men fighting with us. Even though you might trust him, king, and want him to be your bodyguard, we don't trust him worth a hoot against the Israelites. So I'm not going to go through all this scripture, but that's basically what's going on here. And so, again, David does a phenomenal job of acting. He's got the king totally on his side, but it's going to be to David's benefit. The Oscar goes to David the mercenary for his award-winning performance in deceiving the king of the Philistines about his own personal loyalty. He really isn't on the side of the Philistines, even though he's acted like he has been, but it's going to be a protection against David. Why? He does, the men don't want him. They don't want him. The Philistine men say, we don't want him fighting with us. That's a protection from the Lord on David because he won't have to kill the Lord's anointed Mashiach, Saul, in battle the next day, or any of his own fellow men. So again, the Lord has protected him. Meanwhile, back in the ranch, David back at Ziklag, what's happening? For 16 months, he's been living there, making these military exploits against different enemies, old enemies of Israel. Many of Israel's delusion warriors have flocked to David to join forces with him. He takes those misfits, right? Those disgruntled Israelites. And now David and his men come to Ziglag on the third day. They've been rejected from fighting with the Philistines. And the Amalekites, oh, we just talked about the Amalekites. Saul didn't wipe them out. Well, now the Amalekites have come back and made a raid on the Negev against Ziglag, David's town. And they have overcome Ziglag while David and his men were gone. They have burned it to the ground with fire. They have taken captive all their women and all their children. No one has been killed, but they've all been kidnapped and taken away by the Amalekites. And David's men come and see their city's been burned. Their wives, their sons, their daughters have all been taken into captive. And they cry and they cry and they cry until they had no more strength to weep. David feels horrible. David's two wives have been taken captive. You know, the beautiful Abigail. That's Carmel, Nabal's widow. David is greatly distressed. His men are thinking of stoning him. They've turned on him. And, and the people are bitter in their soul for their sons and daughters. And David strengthened himself in the Lord. What does that mean? When I am afraid, I will trust in you. What does David do? He always goes and prays. David strengthened himself in the Lord. He takes some time to pray, Lord, what shall I do? And he says to the high priest, the son of Amalek, he says, bring me the ephod. Bring me the ephod. What does that mean? That's code. Bring me the sword of Goliath that's what was wrapped. They kept it wrapped in an ephod. Bring me the sword. Bring me the sword. Shall I pursue? He prays to the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band? The Amalekites who have taken our wife and children, should I overtake them? Instead of just rushing and doing it, his men are ready to stone him. He still takes the time to ask the Lord, should I do this, Lord? He inquires of the Lord, should I do this, Lord? Remember what they had done. Of course the Lord wants 
wants them gone. And the Lord says, pursue, yes, David. The Lord answered, David, pursue. You shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. The Lord assures him. So David sets out with 600 men. When they get to the brook at Bresor, only 400 can go forward. 200 are too emotionally drained. They're too tired. They can't do it. They can't do it. They can't do it. So they turn back. They find the Lord provides for David an Egyptian guide, an Egyptian straggler that's been seen that whole battle at Ziglag. He knows exactly all the information. He happens to be behind. And the Lord plunks him right in front of David. And he says, I know right where they are. I can lead you right to them. But would you protect my life? And he says, he will. And what do they give him? Bread and wine, cake and grapes, cluster of raisins. It's a form of bread and wine. He hadn't eaten for three days and three nights, and he's given bread and wine. And then he, he just says, just promise me. This Egyptian guy says, just promise you won't kill me. And David says, we won't. And so he shows them where they are hiding, and David smote them from twilight to the evening of the next day. Not a single man of them escaped except... Oh yeah, 400 on mounted camels got away. Remember that. But David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing. All the sons, all the daughters, all the spoil. David brought it all back. He captured the flocks and the herds and the people drove the cattle before him and they shouted, this is David's spoil. And David came to where the 200 men, the ones who were too exhausted, that couldn't continue. And he saluted them. They're his men as well. And the guys that did the fighting, the 400 other guys said, hey, we, we get the booty. We get all this stuff. We get all the animals, all the flocks, all the stuff. Because these guys don't get any of it because they didn't go with us. They were too tired. They were little babies. Wham, wham, wham. We did the fighting. We get all the booty. And David said, uh-uh. David said, not so, my brothers. Not so. He, we will share it all fairly. We will share and share alike because we are the army of the Lord's. And David did not let them distribute it that way. He said, everybody will get the rewards. And so here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And the whole booty was shared among the camp. Everybody plays the fool. And I'd like to end with this prayer. It's called the fool's prayer. So listen closely. It's a poem. The fool's prayer by Edward Sill. The royal feast was done. The king sought some new sport to banish care. And to his gesture cried, sir fool, kneel down and make for us a prayer. Oh, the gesture doffed his cap and bells and stood the mocking court below. They could not see the bitter smile behind the painted grin he wore. He bowed his head, he bent his knee upon the monarch's silken stool. His pleading voice arose, O oh Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. No pity, Lord, could change the heart from red with wrong to white as wool. The rod must heal the sin, but Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. Tis not by guilt the onward sweep, of truth and right, O Lord, we stay. Tis by our follies that so long we hold the earth from heaven away. These clumsy feet still in the mire, so crushing blossoms without end, the hard, well-meaning hands we thrust among the handstrings, heartstrings of a friend. The ill-timed truth we might have kept, who knows how sharp the, it pierced and stung, the word we had not sense to say. Who knows how grandly it had rung? Our faults no tenderness should ask. The chastening stripes must cleanse them all. But for our blunders, oh, in shame, before the eyes of heaven we fall. Earth bears no balsam for mistakes. Men crown the knave and scourge the tool. That did his will. But thou, O oh Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. The room was hushed. In silence rose the king and sought the garden's cool and walked apart and murmured low, be merciful to me, a fool. Everybody plays the fool sometimes. 
Dear Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. That was part three of the first book of Samuel, chapters 27 through 30, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.